Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today comes from 2 Corinthians, the third chapter. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy, the third chapter. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from your childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme, or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are down to the last two sermons in our sermon series. Can I get an amen to that, everybody? (laughs) We're in our sermon series, Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. And we are in the fourth part of our sermon series where we are talking about individuals who made a major contribution to the Christian faith. These are better known as church fathers and mothers. And these are the people who helped transform the faith from a fledgling religion into the official religion of the Roman Empire. So the way these sermons work, and today's sermon is a part one of two parts. The next, this sermon and next sermon, they go together as a single unit. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about a Christian, where they came from, who they were, how they became a Christian. And then I'm going to tell you about what they did, what was so important about them. Why do we remember them today? And how does their contribution impact us here in the 21st century? So last week, we talked about the church father Tertullian and his belief in religious freedom. This week, we're going to be talking about the church father Athanasius. But before I can tell you about Athanasius, I need to tell you about the person who brought Athanasius to prominence, a man by the name of Constantine. Now, whether you realize it or not, you've been looking at Constantine's face throughout this entire sermon series, because that's who he is right up there. That's Constantine, and there's a good reason why I put him up there. He is the first emperor of the Roman Empire to really embrace Christianity. He's the person who ends up transforming Christianity from an illegal religious sect, and you do need to realize that it was illegal to be Christian in the Roman Empire, into the most dominant religion in the Roman Empire. So I want to start by telling you the story of Constantine, and his story is going to lead in to that church father, Athanasius. So Constantine, he was born February 7th, 272 AD, 
and he was born in the town of Nyasis, which is actually found today in modern Serbia. Constantine's father, he was an officer in the Roman army. He was part of Emperor Aurelian's imperial bodyguard, so he protected the emperor to make sure that he could get where he needed to go. But his father was more than simply a soldier. He was politically very savvy, and he worked his way up the ranks, and at just the right point in time, he was in the right place. Because the emperor decided that he was going to split the empire into two halves that would be overseen. There would be the eastern and the western half. There was simply too much territory for them to cover, and they needed more coverage to make sure that people were making the right kind of decisions. Constantine's father was given control of the western half of the empire, the red part. And so, as a result of this, Constantine's father, his authority was below just that of the emperor. He was in control of Britain, Spain, and Gaul. He basically oversaw that whole part up there. And things were going along just fine until in 306 AD, Constantine's father became ill. And on his deathbed, he calls in his son Constantine, who had been fighting with him, and he says to Constantine, I'm going to give you all of my lands. So all of a sudden, Constantine found himself the second most powerful man in the Roman Empire. And as you can imagine, this didn't sit too well with the political elite back in Rome. And within a few years, civil war would break out within the Roman Empire. The civil war would last from about 310 until 325 AD, 15 years. And at the end of that time, Constantine would be declared the official emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, we're not going to get in to the whole war and everything that happened because that's a lot of information you don't really need. What you do need to know, though, is that Christianity played a very important role in Constantine's victory. Now, to help you understand just how important it was in his victory, I want to take you to his first battle. So as you can see, he's up there in the north, and he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to gather his troops and start moving them down closer into Italy. He wants to move them down to Rome so that he can get rid of any opposition to the throne that might be there. So this is about 312. It's about two years into the Civil War when he moves them down. And when he gets down to the point where he's about to have this battle, he looks up into the sky and he sees a vision of a cross of light. And he hears the words, and this is according to the church historian, a man by the name of Eusebius, who supposedly interviewed Constantine. He heard the words, in totu nika, which literally means, through this sign, you shall conquer. And the sign was comprised of two Greek letters, chi and rho, which are the first two Greek letters to be found in the Greek word Christos, which literally means Christ. The sign looked something like this. You've probably seen that before. And he put that on the shields of his soldiers. He put it on the standard bearers, and they went into battle, and guess what happened? They won. And he would use this symbol again and again throughout the Civil War until he would come out to be the victor. Now, you want to know what's so fascinating about this symbol, this sign that we're looking at right here, the whole thing with Christos? Is that Constantine wasn't a Christian. He didn't grow up in the church. And in fact, when he got baptized, it was like right before his death. 
That was when he got baptized. It's like one of those mob bosses who's like, I need to be forgiven of everything I've, been, of everything I've done. So they brought in the priest and they baptized him right before he died. Now, we don't know. Historians are unsure why Constantine favored Christianity in the way that he did. One popular theory is that he was first exposed to Christianity by his mother, Helena. And that may be how he heard about it first. However, scholars are kind of split on that one because Helena was from the lower classes. And more than likely, she was a concubine to Constantine's father and not his wife. So if she's a concubine, she probably isn't a Christian, but I'm just going to put that out there. We don't know. We're not entirely sure. But here's what we do know. 313 AD, after the first battle, when he wins with that Cairo symbol, he issues, Constantine issues what's called the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan is this remarkable document that states that now all religions within the Roman Empire are legal. That no matter who you are, it doesn't just make Christianity legal, it makes all religions legal within the Roman Empire. This is the first time that a major superpower has embraced the idea of religious freedom. And if you were here last week, you know where that idea came from. It came from the church father, Tertullian. Now, one might surmise that the reason why Constantine wanted to legalize Christianity is because of being able to win all those battles with the Cairo symbol, right? I mean, that would make sense. You win all those battles, you want to say, yeah, we'll make it all legal, right? But it was a bit more practical than that. You see, thanks to all the people we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, we talked about that guy, Irenaeus, remember? We talked about Irenaeus, we talked about uh, Perpetua, Origen, Tertullian, those guys. Because of them, Christianity went through this explosion between 200 and 300 AD. All of a sudden, all these people started becoming Christian. And so by the time that Constantine was consolidating his power, by the time he was kind of coming into his own, it made sense for him to legalize Christianity because they represented one of the largest demographics within the Roman Empire. It was going to make it a lot easier for him to rule if these people were now legal. And as a result of doing this, Christians were ardent supporters of Constantine, and he didn't hesitate to return the favor. So once he becomes the sole emperor of the Roman Empire, 325 AD, he's the man, he becomes a really big promoter of the church. So one of the first things that he does is he puts finances behind the church, and he starts building Christian basilicas all over the Roman Empire. And these basilicas, some of them still exist to this day. The second thing he does, which is very, very important, is he gives back all of the property that had been confiscated by the Roman government during the persecutions. Because what would happen is, you would be persecuted, you'd be killed, and they'd say, hey, your property is now ours. They would take it. So he gave all of that back. The next thing he did was that he provided certain tax exemptions for clergy. Gotta love that tax-exempt status. You know what I'm talking about? So... Judy, TC, and I, we actually have tax exemption. We, we enjoy that to this day. And it's crazy that that started all the way back in 325 with Constantine, going all the way forward. And then finally, the most important thing that he did is that he started promoting Christians to high-ranking offices within the Roman government. And that will be key for what we're talking about next week. So, to say 
that Constantine turned the tables for Christianity, we'd be, I'd say, a bit of an understatement, right? I mean, you go from being this illegal sect, you're not allowed to do or worship or any of that stuff, to all of a sudden, you're at the top. And when this happened, when the church leaders found themselves on the right side of the law, they looked at the scripture that we read this morning from 1 Peter, and they felt that it was prophetic. Let's take a look at that scripture one more time. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and praise those who do right. Now, for centuries, that scripture felt like a death sentence because Christians were often on the receiving end of the government's authority to punish. But they stuck to their guns, not literally because, you know, they didn't have guns back then and they were nonviolent, remember that, okay? They stuck to what they were doing. They, they stuck to what Jesus told them to do. They, they did what he said. They didn't fight back. And as a result of that, they felt they were being rewarded. They had been told, honor the emperor, and now what was happening? The emperor was honoring them. But there was one small problem, one little issue with this. Yes, Christianity was now legal, but there were lots of different varieties of Christianity out there in the Roman Empire. And many of these different versions, they had different beliefs about Jesus and who he was. And so once Constantine was kind of backing the Christian faith, what he said was, he kind of got the church leaders together, and he said, okay, guys, we're going to get our act together on this one. No more competing versions of Christianity. We're going to have one version, and everybody's going to follow that one version. Now, Constantine, he knew virtually nothing about Christianity. So what he decided to do was he called all of the greatest thinkers— of the day, the greatest minds, he called them together to figure out what the right belief should be. And it's important for you to understand, Constantine didn't care what they came up with. He just wanted them to have one thing. It could have been the total opposite of what we follow today. He would have been fine with it. He just said, figure it out. Now, this gathering, it became known as the Council of Nicaea. And it put forth what we know today as the Nicene Creed. It was the first uniform set of beliefs that was promoted by the church. Now, the way that he did this is he invited all the bishops from all over the empire to come together. Ultimately, 318 of them showed up, and they represented all kinds of different varieties of Christianity and Christian belief. But when you break it down, they essentially were in two basic camps. And these camps, they were kind of debating over the relationship between Jesus and God. I'm not going to get into all that today. It's very nuanced and complicated, and you don't care, so don't worry about it, okay? We're not going to get into all that. But what you need to know is that there were two men who were promoting the sides. One guy was a man named Arius, and the other guy was a man named Alexander. Not me, another Alexander back then, okay? Alexander, very common name. All right, so two guys, they're promoting it. Now, you have to realize they were split down the middle, because Arius would get up and he'd give this impassioned speech. And everybody would say, like, you know, that sounds pretty good. I like what he says. And then Alexander would get up and he would give an impassioned speech. And everybody would say, I don't know. What he said sounds pretty good too. And they couldn't come to a consensus. So, do you know what ended it all? And I think this is so fascinating. There was a young scribe who was there at the time. A young man who Alexander had brought with him. He was a deacon by the name of Athanasius. 
Athanasius had been a student of Alexander, and he was a brilliant, brilliant young man. And he was from an aristocratic family, which shouldn't surprise you at this point. Everybody who we've been talking about was from an aristocratic family because if you had an education, that meant you had money, okay, is really what it came down to. But Athanasius had done something that nobody else had done. He had spent his early life studying all of the writings of the greatest Christian thinkers of the last 300 years. He knew all of them cold. And it's not just the people he agreed with, it's also the people he disagreed with. So he calls Alexander over and he says, I think I have a way to end this. And he gave him one word, one word, homo usion, homo usion, which literally means we translate it into English as consubstantial. And so Athanasius, he was arguing that Jesus' nature was consubstantial with God, which essentially means one in being. Now today, this type of thinking, that's how the vast majority of us think about Jesus, right? But you have to realize that that was the first time that anybody had ever come up with this idea that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. Indeed, this word, homoousion, it would allow the Council of Nicaea to create the doctrine of the Trinity. And I know it sounds crazy, but this one word is what locked the Christian faith into what we know today. Because once the people heard that word, all the bishops, and by the way, you know how you're reading that and you didn't know what that meant? Guess what? They didn't know what it meant either. It had to be explained to them. So Athanasius, he gets up, he explains the word, he explains what it means, and once they heard it, and the explanation behind it, they said, that's good. That's the way we want to go. And that's how they built the consensus, and that's what it was going forward. So this one word brought great fame to Athanasius. A couple months after the Council of Nicaea, he is declared the Bishop of Alexandria. Big deal. That's like one of the biggest spots to be a bishop. You might remember we talked about Origen a couple weeks ago. The Bishop of Alexandria is the one who declared him a heretic. Declared Origen a heretic, so it's a big deal. And then a couple decades later, Athanasius, he will produce a list of 27 different documents, 27 different books that he feels represents the Christian faith. He developed these books based on these prior Christian thinkers, but he felt that these books did what we read today in 2 Timothy. What does it say? All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. He felt that those 27 different books did that. And do you know what those 27 different books are today? What are they called? The New Testament. So this one guy, Athanasius, he's huge. He came up with the one word that defines the entire Christian faith and that Bible you have in your pew, he defined what those books are in that Bible. Now, it would take some time, but thanks to Constantine and Athanasius, within a few hundred years, all those competing versions of Christianity would cease to exist. Now, it didn't take long, once Christianity was at the top of the religious food chain, to forget about the history of how they got there. They didn't remember all of that. They didn't need to remember all the past 300 years of how they struggled and the challenges and the stuff that had almost brought them down and destroyed them. They didn't remember any of that. All of that stuff all of the stuff that they learned from the early church, that was ancient history. They didn't need it anymore because now they were firmly established. But do you remember 
Some of the things that we've been talking about over the last 10 months, the lessons that we've learned from the early church, or is that ancient history to you as well? <laughs> Let me remind you of a few of those things that we've talked about. So one of the first things that we discussed, perhaps one of the, the most important things that we discussed, is that Christianity, from its origins, was a religion of adaptation. Christianity was able to adapt to whatever circumstances in which it found itself. So, an example of this. Early on I told you, what, what was Christianity? It was a primarily Jewish movement, right? Remember I told you, it was primarily comprised of Jews. And then they set up their churches, and what happens? All these people who are not Jewish, they start coming in, and they're part of the church. And this is kind of a problem, right? So, what are they going to do? Are they going to force all these people to convert to Judaism? Well, what they decide, and what Paul decides, is he is going to adapt to his circumstances. And so, he tells the people, here's what you're going to do. You don't have to follow the kosher laws. You don't have to eat kosher anymore. You don't need to do that. And, big one for the guys, you don't have to get circumcised. Right? And the guys are like, hey, I can be Christian. That works for me. Right? No problem. Now, he adapted to his circumstances. And it made a big difference because he said, you don't need to be Jewish. You just have to have faith in Jesus. Now, that's an important lesson. Would you agree? I mean, it's an important lesson that we take away. Christianity is adaptive. But once Christianity became the dominant religion within the Roman Empire, they didn't need that lesson anymore. You don't need to adapt to anything because now everybody's adapting to you, right? You're at the top. Okay, another example. Early on in this series, I told you how everybody in here holds a little bit of the truth of who Jesus is in their hearts. Nobody's Jesus is 100% accurate. My Jesus is not 100% accurate, nor is yours. And the reason why is because you can see it in the Scripture. Even the disciples disagreed about what they believed about Jesus. But after the Council of Nicaea, that was no longer the case. Once those bishops came together and they developed the Nicene Creed, they knew exactly who Jesus was. There were no other versions of Jesus, just the one that was represented in that creed. And indeed, today, the Jesus found in the Nicene Creed is what the vast majority of Christians adhere to around the world. But one thing I wanted to demonstrate to you through this series is that even though the Nicene Creed represents the most popular version of Jesus, it is certainly not the only version of Jesus. It's not the only way to think about who Jesus was. And I've had so many of you come up to me in the last 10 months in this sermon series, and you've said things to me, which I really appreciate. You said, gosh, I didn't know that everything was so tumultuous. I didn't know that they were fighting with each other so much. I thought it was just, you know, straight and narrow. Everybody believed the same thing. Hey, we're on the right path, right? And I can understand why you would think that, because from 325 onward, that was the case. That's the way they thought about it. And what we tend to do is we read that unity that came from 325 back into the first 300 years. We say, oh, well, of course, they were always that way when it really wasn't. So one of the reasons why you're hearing about this for the first time, as many of you have come up to me and said, why haven't I heard about this from other pastors? Well, one of the big reasons is because it's complicated, right? And I'm not trying to say that pastors are not smart. It's just that Giving it to you all is tough. It's a complicated thing. You've been sitting here. I know sometimes you walked away like, I don't even know what he's talking about, okay? But I tried to help walk you through it. Another big reason why pastors tend to avoid it 
is because it can be disorienting. If you've grown up thinking that Christianity has always been one way, then hearing that they were like all over the place when they were first starting, that can be tough. And the final reason why you don't really hear very much about this is because of where Christianity was in society and culture. The first 300 years, Christianity was at odds with the culture, right? I mean, it was kind of against it. And from 325 onward, Christians, we were defining society and culture. We were the ones at the forefront of that. It's only recently that that first 300 years has really become important for us again. Because as I've told you, the society, the culture, I've talked about this ad nauseum in this sermon series, it has turned on us. We are no longer at the top of the religious food chain. And therefore, those lessons that we learned from the early church, they have become important for us once again. They are relevant to our current circumstances. And if we don't learn from those early church lessons, then we can't be the church of the future. All right. So we have one sermon left in this sermon series. One sermon to go. And remember what I told you. Today's sermon and next week's sermon, they go together as a pair, right? And next week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about all the lessons we learned over the last 10 months. We're going to put them all together, and we're going to try to figure out what do we need to take from those to be the church of the future, okay? That's the idea. That's what we're doing next week. Now, this brings me to my final point. And every week when I preach, I try to give you a point of action something practical that you can take away and do in your lives, right? Something you can take on to the next week. And since this was pretty much all one story this week, this is what I need you to do next week. I need you to come back, okay? (laughs) I need you to come back here. I need you to talk to your family and your friends. And I need you to tell them to be here. Because the fact is, if we want to be the church of tomorrow... We all have to be working together today. True? That is true. Okay. So my prayer for you is that you would talk. Talk to the people around you. I know there are people who take the summer off in church. I notice that they're not here during the summer. If you see them and they haven't been here, say, hey, you need to come back. Alex has something very special planned for the last sermon in his series. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't even know what he's talking about half the time, but he said we need to be here. So let's be present, okay? Bring them in. Remember what I said, cancel your vacation plans, okay? Okay? Don't leave. Come back. So, can you do that? Can you be here next week? All right. Will you tell other people about it? Okay, thank you. We got one more to go. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.